Welcome to POTUS 2020 Battleground America. I'm Ted Johnson, political editor at Deadline. And I'm Dominic Patton, senior editor at Deadline Hollywood. Today, we're going to talk to Mayor Pete Buttigieg about last night's debate and about his new book called Trust. We'll be asking him how he thinks that faith can be restored in some American institutions. And we'll ask him as well about his recent Star Trek-themed fundraiser. But first, last night was the final presidential debate. It was definitely a calmer affair, and that was primarily because there was a mutant button. Uh, and also, I, I would also say because there was Kristen Walker as moderator. Yeah. Yes, I, I would Chris say I would say I, I have a lot of respect for Chris Wallace, um, but I think and and various other moderators who've done town halls and solo things with both B Biden and Trump. Everybody should listen to Kristen Walker because that mute button, while it was introduced for this third debate because of the former Celebrity Apprentice's constant interrupting in the first debate on September 29th. That was not actually under her control, as we know. That was actually under the control of the producers. What was interesting is, Kristen, though Trump tried to roll her a bit at the beginning, she just shut him down eventually. And that was that, that's what a moderator is supposed to do, is we are going to have a debate, we are going to talk about topics, and for the most part, and I know there, was, there were exceptions, clearly, for the most part, she was very successful in keeping the trains on the track, which when you're dealing with, with a, a self-inflicted dumpster fire like Donald Trump, is an achievement unto itself. I, I, there was one very impressive moment with Kristen Welker that I think really stood out. And that was when they were talking about the uh, uh, childhood migrant uh, separation. And Trump uh, came back at Biden and said, oh, they were, they were in these great uh, facilities. Uh, these were great facilities for these children. And Kristen Welker, she interjected, but they were still separated. They were still separated from their parents. And I just thought, you know, her job uh, actually is not to fact check, but she did it so subtly um, as if to kind of interject there, hey, you know, don't go off on your wild tangents, you know, because, you know, this is the reality right there. So I, th I thought she was especially adept at that. And fact checking and in subtler, uh, subtler ways, not so blatant that would have, you know, made her part of the story. I, I totally agree. Now, I also will say though, I mean, there are people who have come out Monday, mon let's call them Monday morning quarterbacks or Friday morning quarterbacks in this case, and have talked about Trump really being, you know, that constant phrase that it seems somebody tries to throw in every time Donald Trump doesn't lose his blow his brains out, which is that he was more presidential purely based on the fact that he was more restrained for the first several minutes, for the first, I'd say, half an hour or so before the interjections, the interruptions, the non sequiturs, the untruths, et cetera, et cetera, came flowing out again. At, at this point, Trump is not just a name, it's a diagnosis, clearly. But I would say that it's interesting to feel how the media is constantly trying to find a way to normalize him. And going into these last, you know, we're almost out of double digits. This is 11 days to go, you know, the weekend, and we're, we're going to begin the final, final stretch. I think that it's time to look at a bit of an analysis of really contrast of two very different candidates who clearly loathe each other, by the way, and plexiglass and everything else doesn't change that. What was your, what is your feeling about that, Ted, of this, this idea that people are, 
it's like they're always trying to give Trump a little bit of a lift, like, well, at least he wasn't as bad as last time. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, he, it's always great. He's always graded on a curve, you know, and it's his own curve. So it, it, it's, uh, it's perplexing to me because uh, I saw a lot of this, you know, on Twitter, you saw a lot of people saying, oh, he's, uh, he's more presidential this time. Uh, well, yeah, that's in comparison to what he was, but it's not in comparison to perhaps what Joe Biden will be. Uh, and I think um, uh, you kind of have to take that into account. I, I, I thought Trump was, yes, he was more disciplined at the beginning of the debate, debate, but that started to wear thin toward the end of the debate. Joe Biden was very sharp at the beginning of the debate, but that started to kind of wear thin at the end of the debate. You know, you saw one of the Biden gaffes on the oil industry uh, toward the very end. Um, uh, so, I, but was but that I really do, a, what was that? Was that really a gaffe? I mean. Not the quite, the point not quite. Is we, we are transitioning towards an oil-free economy anyway. So it, it's, I get, I, you know, I think, the, I think the former vice president did suffer from the fact that he tried to oversimplify a very complex uh, process, and that might have tripped it, him up. Would you close down the oil industry? By the way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would that's transition. a big statement. That's, it is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh, I see. Here's the deal. But that's a big statement. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the, to the gas, excuse me, to, the, to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. Well, it was a gaffe in, the, in that it was kind of feeding into Trump's hands. He was kind of ready there and waiting, and Trump really seized on that at that moment. And had uh, Biden come back and clarified, hey, I mean, uh, I mean uh, uh, fossil fuel tax credits, not getting rid of the oil industry overnight. Um, but I, I'm not so sure that it, in the grand scheme of things, it's really all that big of a deal in the long term, because after all, uh, you know, at the very least for Biden, this debate was a draw. He was sharper than he has been in any debate. I've actually seen this cycle and clearly he had, he had prepared well. And uh, that works in his favor. Uh, he is, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 points ahead for these final days of the election. And this was Trump's biggest opportunity to reach that big, sizable nas na national audience to really kind of change things. Now, I would expect in the coming week, uh, there will probably be a lot of stunts <laughs> coming out of the White I, House. Look, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if at one point we're going to war with either Iran or China. What well, I will say, and, and we're going to talk to Mayor Pete about a lot of this very soon, but one thing that I really found interesting is this, and you just touched on it here, is the speed of events. And now we're going into hyperspeed and almost the jump to light speed. You know, just two days ago, I thought the biggest story out of this was going to be the intelligence community saying that Iran and Russia had been interfering in the election, specifically the Iran charge, because it was definitely being framed by the, the director of national intelligence to be something that was being used in Biden's favor to hurt Trump. That was just a non-event. That that story is so old now. Behind Chinese bank accounts and and Hunter Biden laptops and Rudy Giuliani and the Borat the Borat sequel, 
it's like whatever we're talking about today is irrelevant tomorrow. I mean, I actually think that Trump could have helped himself by not bringing up Hunter Biden throughout this debate. Because I also think most people don't know who Hunter Biden is. They think it's either like, is he referring to like a a very well-known British uh, uh, rain boot company? Or like, what? you know, they don't know who he is. When he says Hunter's laptop, is that like a movie they haven't seen on Netflix? Well, even for the news media that has been covering this story, uh, they it's easy for them to get lost. And that may have been intentional on Trump's part uh, to just kind of mucky up the situation. But really, I would imagine that people who haven't been paying a lot of attention probably uh, was were wondering, you know, what on earth is he actually talking about? That's why I was so, thought it was so effective for Joe Biden to kind of stop that argument. Now, Biden has had his own thing about the Chinese bank account to throw back at Trump. But Biden knew to stop and look in the camera and say, hey, this isn't about his family or my family. It's about your family. And Trump actually mocked that point. But I actually thought it was kind of effective. Yes, it was kind of a cliche. It is what Democrats say quite a bit. But in a debate where you're running against an opponent who has a deficit of empathy, I thought it was very effective. I agree. I agree. And, 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 you know, the other thing, and I've said this before, I do think that there's a very quiet part of the Joe Biden campaign strategy that is the Reagan campaign strategy. And I think that they definitely, he didn't quite stop and say, are you better off today than you were four years ago? But that, that line about your family was, again, talking to the camera directly, talking to the American people. For all the talk we've done over the years about Donald Trump as a TV president, he's actually pretty lousy on TV for the most part. To that, We'll talk about someone who is not lousy on TV, someone who's been in the arena himself, someone who is appearing all over the network and is a tremendously effective surrogate for the Biden campaign and clearly one of the bright stars of the future of the Democratic Party. We are so pleased to have on the podcast today, Mayor Pete. Mayor, I uh, I thought I'd start just by asking you uh, just about last night's debate. Uh, uh, We saw a very different Donald Trump uh, from the first debate. Were you surprised at all? I think we did and we didn't. Uh, obviously, he uh, was <laughs> instructed or advised to uh, actually behave in a more normal uh, adult fashion. But what I realized is even though the tempo changed, the, the song remains the same. Uh, oh, still, nice uh, Led Zeppelin uh, reference, man. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. Um, you know, the same indifference to what people are going through, the same uh, willingness to, uh, to just put out blatant lives, the same reliance on insult, especially when it came to the way he was talking about the VP and his family, uh, just done in a more measured way. Uh, and, you know, I think his job, just strategically speaking, was to try to do something that was going to change the direction of the race. And uh, I didn't see that happen at all. You know, one thing that occurred to me in watching this is, um, and of course, we've seen a lot in, 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 in recent months with you, you know, you're, you're appearing on a lot of cable news stations, you even go, you even venture into the deep territory of Fox News, it feels like when we see these debates, it feels like the former Celebrity Apprentice host, he doesn't really know how to function outside of the echo chamber. That once you start to throw out the bullet points, the insults, the name calling, and the smirking, there's not a lot of there there. What's your well, take? There's not much left yeah, when, you, when you throw those things out. You know, he's a showman. That's, that's what he uh, does. And that got him as far as he's gotten. But uh, when you have a deadly serious set of issues, like a mass casualty event uh, created by a pandemic, uh, not to mention the, the moral, racial, economic crises of justice we have in this country. Uh, there's just no way that you can get around it. And I think that's part of why his, uh, 
his game, if you will, was breaking down. Now, was there any one moment that really stood out for you last night? That was going you know, to be my me, question. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like the exchange on family separation was very revealing uh, because it was an issue of such moral clarity. And you, you could see that a level of, of uh, anger, I think, in, in Joe Biden talking about what had been done. And you could tell this just did not connect with any sense of, of right and wrong on the part of, 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 mm -hmm. of Donald Trump. He just went right back into his, uh, uh, his usual kind of, you know, I know you are, but what am I kind of uh, school, school ground stuff. The other moment that I thought was interesting was when, uh, when Joe turned to the American people and just started talking about the kitchen table decisions that people are making. And the president mocked him for it. And I think that that, that only happens if, if you're somebody who's never actually been at a kitchen table doing the bills, which is, of course, just uh, very remote from any kind of lived experience that, that, that Donald Trump would have had. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Mayor Pete, because I, I agree that that, that that just plays children moment, for lack of a better expression, was extreme on all levels. And I think as anyone, and, and I am one, a parent, and, and, and even people who don't have children, it's so visceral. But what yeah. I felt was, was for me, the whole thing was kind of, the die was cast at the beginning, as Ted and I said in our review, whereas yeah. the vice president walked on stage wearing a mask, which he took off as he approached the podium, and uh, Trump walked on stage with no mask and a big scowl on his face. And within seconds, within minutes, there was a discussion where Trump was talking about how America is just learning to live through the coronavirus. And Joe Biden said, no, we're learning to die. And that, to me, pretty much was, that was it. That, 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 that train had left the station at that point. For many people, this election has become about the coronavirus and the character of the candidates. Do you agree with that? I think so. I think uh, those are the things that are most on our minds because, you know, life has been turned upside down. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe the president, e even having been hospitalized with this, doesn't feel or see that, but the, the rest of us sure do. And uh, also that character issue is, is very important. And, uh, you know, another very powerful moment for Joe Biden was when he just said, you know, you know who he is and you know who I am. And so much of this was about talking about what Americans already know. You know, most of us already know. That the, do you think, the, okay, so in that vein, let me ask you, do you think this changed anyone's vote? Or do you think this is, do you think, do you think this is locked and loaded going into the final days? I don't think this changed much. Uh, you know, it, it verified what, uh, what we know. If there was any surprise, it was the fact that uh, the president uh, wasn't uh, as, as frenetic as he was the first time around. But uh, honestly, I think this kind of confirmed the direction of the race, which is a, a winning direction for Joe Biden provided that we, we can make sure everybody actually uh, gets out there and votes. Mayor, your, uh, your latest book is called Trust. Uh, it's about restoring faith in our institutions and ourselves. If Joe Biden wins, what do you think is gonna be uh, the most important gesture he can make toward that? Well, I wrote this book on trust because I think we have a three-way crisis of trust, trust in institutions, trust in each other, and then there's a global crisis of trust of uh, countries uh, weighing whether they can ever trust the United States again. And so the next president's going to have a lot of work to do on all of those. Now, I think Joe Biden is well suited uh, because he is so known and, and so trusted to do that, both globally and domestically, but it's not just going to happen on its own. Uh, I think the biggest things that need to happen are a uh, change in tone from the highest office in the land. Uh, that message, as he said uh, when he was on the debate stage about being president, both for those who voted for him and those who didn't. 
but also you're going to have to deliver. Uh, you know, especially as I speak to people from a younger generation, I'm, I'm finally uh, old enough. I'm, I'm admitting that I'm not the same generation as uh, college students who I'm uh, who I'm <laughs> teaching, uh, which is a painful thing to admit. But their generation, we we, we we feel your pain, Mayor Pete. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very interesting talking about how they view the world because their generation is both more uh, earnest and more cynical than, yeah. than my kind of, um, from kind of the older reaches of the millennial generation. And, uh, what that adds up to, I think is, uh, they're going to need to see that, uh, that Washington can be made to actually deliver, which by the way, it absolutely can, as we've seen in the way yeah. that healthcare was delivered for millions of Americans, uh, but really deliver across the board on economic opportunity, climate action, physical gun safety, racial justice. Uh, there's going to be a huge amount of pressure on this White House that hopefully Joe Biden will be uh, beginning to build in a matter of days to actually produce receipts that give people confidence in, in our institutions before it's too late. Now, you, of course, look, you have you have been you have served our country in the military. You have served your, your you have served your city as a mayor. You have served your party and the nation as a presidential candidate, and you are clearly one of the leading surrogates for for the vice president. One could be fair to say you are one of his adopted political sons, and what is the big family known as the Bidens. There's a lot of talk about what's going to happen for you next. You are you are the future of the Democratic Party, Mayor Pete. So, if the vice president says, well, "What do you want to do? What do you want to do?" You know, that's uh, uh, really not for me to say. He's going to be oh, come putting on. together. No, but really, right? It, it, the whole point of the president is we have one person who makes these decisions. And, you know, what What, what I will tell him. Uh, what I will say is this, is, but hold on, but I will agree yeah. with you, but let me use the vice president's words in, in his own. He has talked about himself being a transitional president. And how I interpret that is he is bridging generational and political and ideological divides in a way yes. that he, he, because of his legacy and because of the time we're in, is uniquely in a place to do. You are True. clearly a part of that. Well, I hope to be. And, uh, you know, uh, whether that's from within government or from the outside, he, he should know that his administration can count on my support. And, uh, you know, I'd love to return to public service. Uh, and uh, at the same time, wh whatever the right answer is, as he's building the administration, uh, he and, and, and uh, hopefully Vice President Harris and, and uh, the rest of that team should know that I'm going to be doing everything I can to make sure they succeed. Another big thing. Uh, if Joe Biden is elected is, uh, I think, a media institutions are going to have kind of a reckoning of how they restore trust uh, because we're, we're in such a polarized environment. I was wondering whether you have any ideas for what they could do to restore so people kind of operate by the same set of facts. Yeah, you know, I wrote about this a little bit. It used to be the way you would show that you were fair and trustworthy as a media organization is to present both sides. But what we've learned is there's some huge problems with this. Uh, first of all, it creates the impression that there's only two sides. Also, if one of those two sides is a climate denier or a white supremacist, uh, they, they don't deserve to be uh, given a platform. And so uh, I think media needs to really uh, lean into the importance of the editorial role. Uh, in other words, pointing out fact from fiction, even while being very transparent about any kind of ideological beliefs that, that might be in the mix. And uh, it, it's, uh, in my view, actually going to be more important than it used to be, not less, now that everybody can be their own reporter walking around with a smartphone. Uh, it'll be more important than ever that journalists help guide our assessment of the credibility of everything we're seeing and hearing, whether we're hearing it from the White House 
uh, or whether we're seeing it in a, in a shocking uh, video that somebody sends in on Twitter. Yeah, but to, to that end, you, you, of course, have become, you are the Democrat, as I mentioned, you are the Democrat who ventures deep into Fox News. Hmm. Do you, what kind of response have you received from that? I, I have known of some people, for instance, who say, hey, you shouldn't do that. You're legitimizing them. But yeah. I have also heard your point of view about you want to talk to Americans and Americans watch Fox News. So talk to them. But what has been your response and what has been some of the, let's say, process of education that you've gone through as you've gone through this new phase of your political career as a surrogate and as a pundit? Well, the main thing I've found is that, uh, you know, people are tuning into this network in good faith. Uh, you know, many people and those who say I shouldn't go on and they make an argument I think deserves to be taken seriously, which basically says there's a lot of bad faith programming and, and you're, you're uh, you know, giving it credibility by going on. And I get that. But at the end of the day, even if some of those opinion hosts are not on there in good faith, the viewers often are. And I can't be mad at a voter for not understanding my point of view if they've literally never heard it. So part of my job, I think, is to get that point of view out there. And um, to their credit, maybe not exactly in the way they have in mind, but, um, but, but my point of view does get across when, when I have these opportunities uh, to speak on these news programs. And so I think it's important to keep taking that opportunity. The response has been all over the map, but uh, I think that there really are uh, folks who will be challenged to think a little bit differently. Uh, if I can put a perspective in front of them, or even, frankly, some facts in front of them that they yeah, literally the, haven't seen the, before. The, the facts thing is kind of big, I would say. Well, especially because, you know, often, look, we know that sometimes there's, there's false uh, or, or biased reporting out there. But, you know, you look at most of the harm done by uh, ideological right-wing media, and it's about presenting facts out of context or choosing not to present important facts. And so we have a chance to rebalance all of that uh, so that we are, in fact, standing on the same field of reality as we're hashing out our differences over values or, or interests. When you do go on Fox News, what do you feel like you have to be most prepared for? Well, uh, it's usually the, uh, um, for lack of a better term, trumped up scandal of the day, the, the rabbit hole they want to pull you down so that you're not talking about the pandemic, the economy, or any of the other big things affecting American life on an everyday basis. And, you know, sometimes we need to speak to that, deal with it, uh, put it to bed. Um, and, but, you know, the trick is to not get consumed by uh, whatever crazy thing they're throwing around. Uh, and that's usually, you know, a function of a crazy thing that the president and his allies are throwing around because they want us to talk about literally anything except the biggest things affecting our lives. Mm -hmm. I gotta, I gotta finish up, uh, cause I know your, your time, uh, we're under a time crunch, but, uh, two questions I want to finish up with one, can we expect you to guest host for Jimmy Kimmel again? And two, what was it like at that Star Trek fundraiser? Oh my gosh, you were, he, Ted saved that up, Mayor Pete. He saved them. <laughs> so the Star Trek fundraiser was amazing. I mean, we're talking about a, a uh, you know, childhood fantasy of being able to interact with these cast members. At one point, there was a, a, a cast member from a relatively obscure uh, character from the next generation who comes back in the, uh, the more recent series, Picard. And I, I realized uh, I could reach into my closet and find the old action figure I had in this character. So I was geeking out in a huge way. Although I also have to say during the trivia portion of the event, 
uh, I was, uh, uh, we were all absolutely schooled by Stacey Abrams. She is, she is next level in terms oh, of- Oh yeah, you don't, you don't want to fool with that. You know, I, 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 I was told about that by Patrick Stewart. You don't want to mess with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, she's all over it. But also it actually prompted me to go back to some of the stuff I hadn't caught up on like Discovery. Uh, which is a fantastic, uh, just such a well well done show. So that that was just an absolute joy, and it's great to be able to do that, and, and at the same time be doing some good for uh, for for our political cause. Uh, as for the guest hosting, I loved it. I had a really good time doing that, uh, being on the other side of the table, uh, and and just talking to to fascinating people. And and um, uh, I don't know if I'll be invited back, but if uh, if I am, I'll I'll be there with bells on. I have a quick question. This is my follow up to Ted's follow up, which is. Is is that something you're considering for your future? I mean, you look at every, you know, everybody's betting on what you're going to do next because you're a superstar and we all know it. Is that something you would like to do? I mean, you certainly have the chops for it. You certainly have the, the, the natural skill and the hone skill for it. Would that be a platform that you'd be interested in over the next few years? Well, I don't know anybody looked at that and thought I ought to quit my day job, but uh, uh, you know what, what I know is I ought to be making myself useful, and, and there are more ways to do that than ever. So I've, I've learned in life, you know, no one ever thought that going from a failed state treasurer candidate to a small city mayor to uh, a presidential candidate would have been would have been the path that that uh, my thirties would be about. Uh, so I've learned not to get too hung up on what the next title is going to be, as long as I'm doing something I care about and, and connecting with people. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us and uh, for your time. Same here. Thanks for having me. Now we're going to talk about the week ahead. It, the last days. Yeah. These are these are like the, these are the last <laughs> days. Uh, the, it's a know, to, quote, to quote a certain book. These are the final days. Yes, that's right. That's right. Anyone who says right now there's a lot of time, a lot of things can happen uh, before the election, that's not true anymore. That's not yeah. true. 62 million people have voted. Uh, so this election is... I mean, know, you know, that, 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 that before we talk about the, the, the calendar to come, and this, obviously the 60 minutes uh, uh, full hour on Sunday is, is going to be a main part of this. It's amazing how many people have voted ahead of time now. How many people, you know, we are, we are reaching unprecedented numbers. We're reaching numbers that are now going into like 60%, 50% of the amount of people who voted in the last election. So much worry about voter suppression just a few months ago, voter suppression is it's the voters are suppressing people who are trying to suppress them. It's a marvelous exercise. I, I, I usually don't want to go to these places, but whoever wins this election, this has been a marvelous exercise by the American people in their own democracy. And I think that that is something we can't ignore. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think that sometimes you think, oh, people aren't aware of what's going on. You hear that familiar refrain, but I think when it comes to voting, the alarm bells have been sounding for months now. And even though there has never been this big investment in election security or anything like that, I think people are taking these steps and they are fairly adaptable. You know, we saw people saying, oh, don't mail it. I mean, uh, concerns over mail-in. First of all, concerns over COVID. It's going to go to mail-in voting. Then concerns over mail-in voting and what will happen to those ballots. And now we see these huge lines at these early voting locations or uh, people going and, and dropping off their ballots and posting it on on social media. Um, I think, I'm, gonna, I'm real curious as to what election day actually will look like and what the lines will look like on that day because these are the, that's the, what people are saying is going to be the Trump vote. And especially yeah. in some of those swing states, those, those are the people who 
supposedly aren't voting early. Now, that is only if you want to trust what the polls say. And, you know, I, I wouldn't dismiss out of hand that a lot of this early vote is also Trump vote. So I, I think so. And I think, you know, we're always going to see, I mean, I have to say, there's many things to respect about the founding fathers having an election or, or about our republic, having an election in November is not always one of the ones that appealed to me. Having said that, going into November, so we're going to have a lot of things happening in these final days. There's going to be a flurry, some we know, some we don't know, to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld. But one thing we do know is 60 Minutes. So what's your hot take on this? Because clearly this has already become, to quote Dana Bash, a shit show. Yeah, and I think it speaks to kind of the, um, well, first of all, what we saw is uh, uh, both candidates gave interviews to 60 Minutes. It's a tradition uh, the week out before the election for them to feature the different contenders and the different, <coughs> excuse me, vice presidential contenders. And uh, what we saw is that uh, Trump's interview, Leslie Stahl went to the White House to interview. It did not go well. He was upset during the interview. He, he literally did, asked her not to ask him hard questions. He literally yeah. asked her. And so his solution was to tweet out uh, pictures from the interview and to kind of basically, basically uh, stalk Leslie Stahl over the, 20, over the past 24 hours and threaten to release the video of the interview beforehand. Which he did. Spoiler alert. And... Yeah. Um, and uh, he did that. Uh, they released the footage on Facebook. Now, I think it backfired because what it showed was a pretty average interview. I mean, uh, extraordinary in that Leslie Stahl was also at the top of her game and fact-checking Donald Trump. But I don't think anyone would look at that and think, oh, she was, she was snarky and she was mean. No, I just, I just think that she, she was outside the Fox News echo chamber for him, and she asked him real questions, and they had real... And, and you know, it is alien to him, the notion of this idea called follow-up. I mean, just today, we saw him, like, saying, no, 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 to a reporter who asked more than, than two, two questions, because they had a line of thought about something. So I, I think that it's intriguing. You talk about them interviewing two candidates. Of course, they interviewed uh, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence as well, and Trump did not participate in the joint sit down with Pence like he did previously. What kind of numbers do you think 60 Minutes are going to get? Honestly, are they taking the NFL down this Sunday? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think the, the in terms of this backfiring, this is a prime example because Trump has essentially promoted an interview that may otherwise have people have said, oh, another interview with the candidates. Isn't this election over yet? Now, there's probably a little bit more interest in 60 Minutes uh, and what Trump is going to say. Obviously, the White House is going to be watching to see how this interview is edited. Uh, and I would not be surprised at all if they, you know, they scream and holler over certain points that were made during the interview. And uh, But I think that, um, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's only building the audience. And yes, Trump is, you know, it's someone who is so obsessed with ratings, he'll be watching that. You know, it's funny. Somebody said to me, and I know they were joking, but they said, look, when you try to get into the, the psychosis that is Donald Trump, the psychosis in action, they had to ask, they, think, they asked me, they said, do you think Donald Trump really does still want to be president? Like, is he kind of not campaigning to help Joe Biden? 
because the way this has played itself out the past week or so, it feels like the Trump campaign just keep giving more gets, more meat to Biden, making it easier for him. I've yet, I've yet to see them been able to deliver, even on their preposterous Hunter Biden scandal, they got tripped up by their own, like the ex-mayor of New York, you know, Boozy Rudy, showing up in the Borat video in inappropriate circumstances, talking about this laptop, which seems to have risen from the sea and been flown overseas and hid here and this there, like all sorts of things. I just feel like maybe his heart's not in it. They're flailing, and clearly Donald Trump doesn't want to lose, but it's like he just doesn't know how to win, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's, um, I really do think that they're, they're kind of playing the same playbook that they did in 2016. And it just seems like the history of presidential elections in the last generation is the rule seems to be don't play the same playbook that you played four yeah. years ago. It's, 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 it's not a necessarily a different electorate. It's just times have moved on. And yeah. I think people can start to see through it. I mean, the best example is 2012, Obama had a very different campaign than he did in 2008. 2008 was all about hope and change. 2012 was all about taking down Mitt Romney, which the yeah. campaign ended up doing pretty effectively. Yeah. So in terms of effectiveness, we're looking at these final days. There's a, you know, the Biden campaign is yet again rock and rolling over Zoom with their, their strategy, which looks pretty effective. Donald Trump's going to be everywhere and anywhere. You know, he'll show up. It looks like every strip mall in America is getting a visit from Air Force One at this point. Um, and look, and I'm a big fan of strip malls. Um, but what the thing that I guess sits for me here is the ticking time bomb of the Supreme Court, where clearly Vice President Biden has announced his plan, which he's going to do a commission on court reform, which is an open-ended, a.k.a. if I get the Senate, I can do anything I like. Um, but we're going to see a new Supreme Court justice probably in the next few days. Yeah, it, it looks like uh, Amy Coney Barrett will be Amy Coney Barrett uh, will be confirmed on uh, Monday in a vote. I think the vote's going to be fifty-one forty-nine. Uh, not too uh, much of a surprise, right there. And I would expect that Trump is going to play that up as much yeah. as possible uh, come Monday. As hey, listen. All you conservatives who don't like me, look what I've done. This is the yeah. third justice that I've got. Well, this this might be. I mean, I didn't think last night's debate changed anybody's vote clearly. And but the the there are still a demographic or slivers of demographics that are that are that they all say it. Hell, I've said this before. I'm related to some of them. They say, look, I think Donald Trump's a nutcase, and I hate the tweeting, and I hate this, and I hate that. But I agree with his principles about national defense and conservative judges and stuff like that. And, and this Supreme Court win, and it is a win, um, will maybe get him a few more in a couple, of the, a couple of the battleground states. Hard to tell at this point. The numbers were so close in 2016. The numbers are probably going to be nowhere near that close in 2020. I predict, my last prediction of today's podcast, I predict that we will have a winner either on election night or by the morning. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm not quite there yet, but uh, but yeah. Certainly, if you look at the polls, and if you look, uh, you know, if Biden wins Florida on election night, then this race starts to be over. Um, so obviously, there's going to be a lot of attention by the candidates in the last week on what happens in Florida. 
but one more thing about the Supreme Court, and that is I think Democrats have been fairly effective in almost playing down what is happening. Because if it is turned into the circus that kind of happened around Brett Kavanaugh, uh, in the circus by mean, you know, the loud protests that you saw, um, I think that it probably would play into Trump's hands uh, and only reinforce, you know, the message, hey, look, despite, you know, I got, I got this uh, Supreme Court nominee through the Senate, despite, you know, the, the, the far left opposition. Yeah. Democrats seem to be intent on, on playing it down somewhat. I mean, they're still going to be, you know, talking about it, but it's not going to be, I, I don't, it hasn't been so far anywhere near the theatrics that we saw in 2018. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're going to see some people dressed in, dressed in costumes in The Handmaid's Tale, and that has a very deep resonance for many reasons. Um, but I do think um, they're playing the big game, and the big game is upon us. So with that, my friend, thank you very much for joining us uh, this, this week for POTUS 2020 Battleground America, presented by Deadline Hollywood. We will be back next week as we inch towards the finish line here. And of course, we will be with you on Election Day and the day after Election Day whatever America that happens to be. I'm Dominic Patton, Senior Editor for Deadline Hollywood.